You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. First Corinthians chapter 4. Let's get our Bibles open, please. I've met a lot of very knowledgeable people in this world. I've met a lot of smart people in this world. Um, but some of those very same people that I'm talking to you about were not very people-oriented. In other words, they didn't know how to incorporate or use their knowledge or their wisdom uh, that they have in some areas. They didn't know how to work with people. Um, because they have a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom that got them into some high places, got them into some leadership positions. Um, But when they had to deal with people, it was really hard and difficult the way they dealt with those people. They didn't understand personalities, maybe some weaknesses that some may be experiencing and so forth. And because of that, it just causes a lot of disruption with Oh, everything from a workplace to a family to a church to a, any kind of a setting you might want to imagine. You all have seen what I have seen. You know what I'm talking about. Good people, sharp people, but they don't have good people skills, and because of that, <clears throat> a lot of things are ruined. The Apostle Paul was not one of those. Was he a very sharp man mentally? Absolutely. How about spiritually? I don't think they got much better. Was he any good at working with people? Outside of one or two possible examples that I can come up with, John Mark was one of those instances that he struggled a little bit, I think, and possibly in some other areas, but honestly, I don't know where those other areas would be. Outside of that incident, honestly, every time the Apostle Paul dealt with somebody in a very difficult circumstance, he was a gentleman. He was a lawyer, sharp as you can be as a, one of those lawyers of the law. I mean, really was on top of everything and spiritually really had a walk with God. I mean, a, a close walk with God. And when it came time to correct people for wrongs they were doing, he had a way of saying it that Im- immediately took the walls down those things that would have immediately thrown walls up. You ever had someone talk to you and they, they come at you, uh, not to you? You know what I mean? When they're, they're going to deal with an issue, uh, they're coming at you. And they're going to let you know that you this and you that. And this is how this is done around here and so forth. And you don't get a lot accomplished with that kind of an attitude and that kind of a spirit. Uh, Paul was a gentleman. When you get to the chapter we're in tonight, chapter 4, Uh, is as close to um, another time where I felt like Paul was maybe a little bit on edge. Uh, And yet, I will have to say, I feel like the man was led by the Spirit with what he said and how he said it here. I think you'll see what I'm talking about when we get into this. Paul is having to deal with a very delicate subject in the life of people. It's hard to look people in the face and say, you're really a proud person, you know that? You've got a lot of pride, and you've got to deal with that, or you're not going to be usable. Your individual life, your group, your church, your family, whatever it might be, that's a hard thing to do is to deal with people's pride. 
because they are proud and they're easily offended and they have such a small base that they stand on, they're easily tipped over. And so here's Paul's, uh, I love the method, I love the way he went into this and, um, and, and the way he has covered these uh, problems within the Corinthian church. They, they're a proud people. They felt like they had everything that they had already attained, that they were just about as good of a church and good, as good of a group of Christians as you were going to find anywhere on the face of the earth. And he's going to tell them that. And you guys, here's how you're acting and here's what's going on. And he's got to get it corrected or this church is slowly already imploding to the point that it's no longer going to be a viable church before long. Many of the churches Paul dealt with in this day no longer exist, and their history has to go way back before you can find a place where they were in existence. And in this church's case, if uh, the church at Corinth does not get this corrected, pride is going to destroy this church. It's true in every church or family or individual guys that we'll ever go to. The person who is a proud individual group that's so proud about who we are, what we've done, what we've attained, is a group that is on their way down. And Eastside, if we as a church do not learn and understand that God resists that proud attitude and gives grace to the humble, we'll be right along with the church of Ephesus, every church that is in the book of Revelation, those seven churches, and any other church that was lifted up in pride and failed to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. I have twin titles for my message tonight, Driving a Nail into the Heart of Pride. That's probably the best one, Driving a Nail into the Heart of Pride, or um, Firing a Shot Across the Bow. Does that term mean anything to anybody? Firing a Shot Across the Bow. When you look back in history, is there a date that stands out to you, a year that stands out to you where that term was used? I'm going to share that with you here. Let's read our text first, and then we'll read the example I was talking about here just a moment ago. All right, 1 Corinthians 4, we're going to pick up in verse 8. Remember, he's been reprimanding them. For instance, verse 7, they felt like they were so much higher than everybody else. So he says in verse 7, Who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? In other words, you were born like this. You were born gifted in everything. This is just because of who you are. You have all these wonderful things. Or were they given to you? Obviously by God. Well, okay, God gave them to us. And where's the boasting in all of this? Where's the pride coming from all of this? And from any of us, guys, where does pride come from when anything that we have of any kind of uh, giftedness or blessing uh, can only come from God. Where's pride in all of that? God help us to be humble. So that's what he's driving toward. And he, here's how he begins to do it in verse 8. We'll, uh, we'll go down to verse 16 here tonight. So here's what he says to him now. Uh, listen to the wisdom in this and the spirit-led, uh, I think, attitude that he had. He's talking to him now, and they're reading this letter, and here's what he says. Now ye are full. Now ye are rich. Ye have reigned as kings without us. He's talking about himself and the other leadership and the apostles. And I would to God ye did reign, that we also might reign with you. Now, I'm going to hit that pause button I talk about a lot. Listen, these next several verses 
Uh, there's a little bit of confusion from time to time with people wondering, does Paul really believe what he's saying about these people? Or is he just saying this because it's what they think about themselves, and it's a semi, as some say even a sarcastic way of saying it. I don't think there's sarcasm in it. Personally, I think there's a broken heart in this, and what he's doing is drawing a contrast between what they think they are and what he and the other apostles really are living their lives like. So he told them, you guys are rich. Uh, you, you've reigned as kings without us. Then he said, listen to the second half of verse 8, um, and I would to God ye did reign, which tells me that they really weren't reigning as kings and rich and so forth. I wish you guys really did reign, that we also might reign with you. That'd be a real big blessing. We could all just reign together. But truth is, you guys aren't reigning yet. Verse um, 9. For I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last. Now listen to this contrast. As it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world. What is he talking about there? And to angels and to men. Did you notice that? A spectacle, something that is set out for everybody to look at. First of all, for the world, angels and to men. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake. Now here's the contrast but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. This is what they're portraying. This is what they really think about themselves. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. We don't have a place we can, uh, you know, hang a shingle on and call it our house or put an address. We don't have any certain dwelling place because God is just scattering us around the world to places he wants us to go. Verse 12, and labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, uh, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the off-scouring of all things unto this day. I write not these things to shame you. That's a, that's a real key phrase right there. Matter of fact, with all that has just been said, guys, it's, that's a worthy of a highlighted something to, to draw your attention to his real attitude here. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. That's what I'm really trying to do here. For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, there's all kinds of people, all kinds of teachers, false prophets, and all kinds of things in this world, yet have ye not many fathers, somebody who beget you or brought you into the Christian life. In Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. And then we'll pause there with that. Notice how he ended it up. Guys, be ye followers of me. Now, if you're going to, listen, you're going to say that to somebody? I want you to act like me. You better be living right. You better have the right attitude when you say it. You better not have the pride lifting you up and, and um, 
feeling like you're someone that needs to be set up on a pedestal, and Paul definitely made it clear that that is not what his spirit was. But if you're going to tell somebody to follow me, make sure you live in the right way. Amen? If you're telling your children, follow me, make sure mom and dad, you're living the kind of example those kids need. And if you're in some kind of leadership position, if there's something going on in the church that you have a hand in where others look up to you, hey, listen, if you want them to follow you, hey, I'm trying to, you know, if you're in the leadership position, I'm trying to get you to follow me. Why don't you guys, you know, do what you're told to do? Well, just a question tonight is, are you living the way you ought to live? And is your life the kind of example that is needed for others to be able to follow? So that in mind, let me have a prayer and we'll get into this message. God, thank you so much for letting us be in the house of God tonight. And uh, I'm asking you, Lord, that I, as a pastor of this church, who one day I'm going to look you in the eyes of God and give an account for how I have led this church. I'm asking God, give me the right heart. Give me the right attitude tonight. May the Spirit of God prevail and not our flesh tonight. And I'm asking, may that Holy Spirit minister to every person's heart and life to the glory of God. And I'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll go back to 1962, which maybe... Many, if not most, maybe weren't even alive at that time. Um, <laughs> that was last century, wasn't it? But it's in the history books, and you go back and read that. In 1962, the United States was in the midst of what many of us will still remember as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Anybody familiar with that? Anybody alive during that time? Man, and I was seven years old, but I still remember how big that was and how the newspaper headlines and how mom and dad would talk about it the possible war and all the things that were going on with russia that cold war and and between america and it was uh, it was it was a difficult time uh, during that time so we were in the midst of what was called the cuban missile crisis cuba was trying to build up uh, uh, um, a missile defense system that was there 90 miles away from America would threaten us unbelievably, and so we didn't want that. So on October the 27th, the Soviet tanker, um, Grozny, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's the way it looks, uh, that Soviet tanker approached the blockade line that the United States had set up to prevent any Soviet ships from delivering military supplies, especially nuclear bomb supplies, um, into Cuba. We did not want that there, obviously. Uh, the Navy, our Navy, had asked SAC, or the Strategic Air Command, for help. And in this case, SAC sent out RB-47 aircraft to conduct a seaborne search effort. They wanted to find this uh, ship. Um, one of the others spotted Grozny, north of the Virgin Islands, heading for Cuba. The RB-47 conducted a simulated bomb run against her, hoping she would stop, you know, making somewhat of a dive or a, as if they might be dropping bombs, and then hopefully they'd get the picture and turn around, but this ship did not stop. Um, a Navy destroyer signaled her to stop, and again she did not stop. Therefore, Admiral Dennison ordered U.S. ships on the scene to load their five-inch guns with live ammunition. He then ordered them to fire into the sea, but away from the tanker. A few star shell illumination rounds hit close to the tanker, so the Soviet skipper stopped. He radioed Moscow, 
and turned around, leaving the quarantine zone that they were not supposed to enter. And uh, I mean, everybody in the White House, Bobby Kennedy, John Kennedy, all those advisors, breathed a huge sigh of relief because we averted a potential full-scale war with, you say, with Cuba? No, it was with Russia. That was a big deal. We call that the shot across the bow. You shoot, uh, you know, some kind of a bomb across uh, the head of the ship, uh, helping them to understand you keep driving into that, one of these is going to hit you next. So uh, what we were saying to them was, guys, you'd better turn around or you're going to face some deadly consequences. And they needed to change the direction of their ship. I mean, if you keep going, in other words, you keep going in this same course and sure destruction is on the way, and that's what that lob across the bow was intended to speak volumes to them. And I say, thank God, uh, it did its job, and uh, we averted a major war that could have escalated right into a war. So why'd you tell that story tonight? Well, in his gentlemanly, scholarly, God-loving way, I really believe Paul, in as vivid a fashion as he knew how, was lobbing some spiritual truths across the bow of this church and getting them to see and understand, whoa, what, that's some pretty big stuff in front of us. And if those things strike us, we're not going to be doing so good. And, and if what you're telling us about ourselves continues to implode, then we're, we're destroyed and we're worthless and we're done away with. And that's what he's trying to do. I believe with all my heart, Paul, he said some very stark things here. And I, I think he's all but, if he was standing there in front of them, in their face, almost with a hand on their shirt on their chest, shaking them, saying, you guys have got to get this. you you got to wake up to this. I, I brought you to Christ. I watched this church be established. And to watch you implode, I just cannot stand this. So you need to make sure you're turning course. And so he goes into this um, course of conversation the stark contrast to what he's like and the other apostles compared to what they think they are like and get them to understand in a way that to me would a shame bring me to shame to realize that I was even thinking like this when a man like this is living like this and I'm living like that. Or these, were, these are my thoughts and my actions. Number one, Paul begins to deal with their blatant blind spot. They don't see their pride they don't realize what a, you know, a straw figure they really stood up. It's a house of cards that can easily be chopped down, and yet they think they're this great palace of a person, and we're really great. And Paul begins to address that. Look with me in verses 8 and 9 again. So he says to them, and, and again, this is the attitude they have about themselves. This is not what, what Paul thinks about them, but he's letting them know that this is what I see. Now ye are full. Now ye are rich. You've reigned as kings without us. And I would to God ye did reign that we also might reign with you. So you hear what he's saying? You guys are sitting on some kind of a big spiritual throne, but we're not even there yet. Wow, that's really something, guys, that you could get there like that. Verse verse 9, for I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men but to those proud christians they wanted 
those same, that same group of people, they wanted the world, they wanted angels, and they wanted men, oh yeah, to look upon them like a spectacle, not in the way that Paul was talking about, but so that their name could be talked about, and everybody would know that this great church at Corinth is really a great and mighty church, and we're the standard that you ought to go by, and yet Paul is saying, we've been made a spectacle, and I'm guaranteeing you, when he said what he said, every Christian uh, on the block here knew exactly what he meant. We'll address that here in just a moment. So Paul speaks verses in verse 8 to be able to unmask their self-confidence and to show them how foolish what they've been thinking really is. You've got to unmask that. They've got to be able to see it for what it really is. They feel like they are so rich in their, you know, these spiritual gifts. And that was uh, when we get over into chapter 14, many religious groups use chapter 14 as a pattern that they build their church on the gift of tongues and so forth, and yet it's one entire rebuke from verse 1 to verse, I believe it's 40 or 41, uh, at the end of that chapter. And, uh, and so he has to come along and show them, guys, you're living wrong. you got so many things that are, that, are, that are not right about what you're doing. So they are the epitome in their own minds of richly gifted Christians. You know, we're, we're great with tongues. We're great with, you know, name all the other spiritual gifts that were available at that time. You know, we have a word of knowledge and we have all these things. And we, they're not using these words, but what they've demonstrated uh, reveals that we're the greatest. I mean, there's no other church in an area like us. They are so rich. They've reigned as a, as a king would, not needing anything from anybody else because, of course, their coffers are full. I mean, the offerings are great. Things are going really good. Does anybody know what ad nauseum means? That makes me sick. And that's what Paul, without saying it, was really trying to say to them, guys. This is nauseating what I'm having to say to you guys. For me to have to reveal this to you is, is making me sick. Paul goes on to say, you know, I wish you really were as reigning as kings and as rich as kings, which I've already said before is a clear indication, since he had to say that, that they weren't really reigning as kings. And they weren't really these rich guys, rich in spiritual gifts and wisdom and so forth, that they actually thought they were. In other words, he wished they were as full of the knowledge and the wisdom of God as they thought they were. I mean, think about it here, guys. At Eastside, wouldn't that be a big blessing uh, if any church would be able to have people so full of true wisdom, not this fakey, I'm lifted up in pride, was so full of true wisdom and knowledge and, and to be so gifted that they needed nothing else. Wouldn't that be great to have a church full of people like that and no pride, very humble about it? I mean, that'd be tremendous, except there's one thing that would be wrong with that. We would be in heaven and we wouldn't be on earth because <laughs> that's the only place that's going to happen. To get a man like that so gifted and so perfect in every way only comes in heaven. So I think we all know that's not going to happen until the rapture takes place. And so Paul's like saying, guys, stop and think about yourself, seriously. So now, Paul shows the hypocrisy of their pride. These people that feel so entitled to what they have because we're so good. Again, look in verse 9, for I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last. We're so far in last place as it were appointed to death. Now, this being last and appointed to death, every one of their ears perked up and all of their understanding was immediately 
at full attention because they knew what he was talking about. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. So uh, you get the word spectacle in there. Uh, we get our word theater from that word. You take that Greek word and we get the word theater from that, which means he was being set up inside of a theater. And, and listen to this. Every person hearing Paul's letter would have instantly known what he was talking about here. A spectacle in front of angels and the world and so on. Uh, you're probably familiar with this. I've used it several times over the years. But when a Roman general would come back home and into the major city from a great victory that he had just won, they would, uh, uh, he would ride through this decorated gate of the city. Sometimes they'd even tear down a portion of the wall of the city and rebuild a very special gate for this general to come marching back in this tremendous victory back into the city. And behind him, you would have his soldiers that had fought right along his generals first behind him, uh, and then uh, uh, the soldiers that fought for them, and then the enemy, and then behind the enemy was a last group of the enemy. And everybody knew that this last group that was at the tail end of this long entourage, here's the general himself and his uh, captains and then the, the, um, the enemy. And then for some reason, and I don't know why, there was another separate group of the enemy, but you'd have these guys at the very end. Remember Paul saying, I'm last? And this is what he's referring to. I'm, I'm as, it's as if I'm appointed to death. That's what he read that and it said that. So what everybody knew and understood was what he was talking about. The last group back there, as everybody marched into the city and everybody would cheer, they would march that last group right into the uh, Olympic arena. The stands would be full. Gladiators would, gladiators would be around. And they'd put those people out into the middle of the stadium while everybody jeered and cheered for the opening of the gates. And when the gates would open, the lions would come rushing in or they would tie... Um, uh, animal skins like sheepskins around these people. Many times they would be Christians. They would tie sheepskins around them and turn loose just wild dogs or whatever it might be that would just love to come and attack this. They think it's an animal, a sheep that they can attack and take down and watch them rip their bodies apart while everybody in the stands around them cheers and is so excited to watch these, this wicked person, these wicked people being taken down and done away with. What a spectacle those people really were. And what Paul is saying to these people here tonight is, um, that's me. Me and the other apostles, that's what we are like. We are, you, you guys are rich. You guys are, you know, you're reigning like kings. You guys somehow have made it to the top. Not really. You guys have made it to the top. But here we are out in this world trying to serve God. And all we're doing is coming up against opposition. We try to give the gospel of Christ, but the world doesn't want the gospel. Large portions of them. And, and they, they mock us. They put us down. They make fun of us. We're that spectacle out there in the world. But thankfully, we've got some, we've got some kings over here reigning in Corinth. Glad you guys can do that. You understand what these people in Corinth ought to have been feeling like? I would want to slither under the pews and just hide when I begin to realize what a fool I have been to have allowed myself to be lifted up in that kind of pride. So here's what he, do, what he does as we work our way on down here in just a few minutes. 
he takes and draws a very sharp contrast now and says, guys, now, it's almost like they've woken up a little bit, but he says, can I just show you what it's real Christianity is supposed to look like compared to what you guys are acting like and what you think you are feeling like? God help us never to get to this place. So let's look in verse 10, and he begins to go down to verse 13 and says, here's what I look like. And he doesn't say it, but this is what real Christianity if it lives right, will probably look like. Verse 10, we, on the other hand, from you guys, we are fools. That's what they say about us. But we're fools for Christ's sake. And we're willing to take that. Give us that name if we're doing it in the name of Christ. And if the world calls us foolish because we just tried to bring them to Christ and to tell my neighbor about a God that can change their family that can bring families back together, that can bring the drunkard back home and and can make uh, families happy and who can go into the workplace and change an entire attitude. If by me preaching the truth of the gospel causes somebody to call me a fool, then I'll, I'll gladly take that title. I have no problem with that. Verse 10, for we are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but, oh, but you guys are wise in Christ. We are weak. Can you imagine? You're going to understand why his weakness comes in here in a little bit. But you, are, you guys are so strong. You're honorable. But we are, look at this word, despised. You don't want that person around. If you despise somebody, when you see them, it makes you sick. You, you'd want to do anything to get them out of your, number one, out of your house, number two, out of a church, number three, out of a city. I don't want them here. And in some cases, kick them out of our country. We despise those kind of people that stand up and try to tell us that our small G, they don't use that terminology, our small G gods are not right. And the only true God is a God in heaven who died on a cross. They despise that. Verse 11. Even Now here's where a lot of that weakness comes in. Even under this present hour, right now as I'm writing this letter, if I could put it that way, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. We don't even have a home to go home to and know that there's a table spread with a meal sitting there. And a tall glass of whatever it is I'd, I'd like to drink. Uh, we have no certain dwelling place. Nowhere to go to call our home. But I'm sure glad you guys are sitting on this kingly throne. And you guys have somehow made it without us. Wow, I wish you guys really were reigning because we'd love to be there with you. Verse, verse um, 12. And we labor. Paul was a tent maker working with their own hands, being reviled. Just everything they do is being criticized and put down. And when we do that, when they do that to us, we bless. wonder why he's saying that. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Why did he say being reviled, we bless? Because I think it's because it's another sharp contrast to the way they act when they're reviled and when they're despised and when they're put down. They don't, they don't act in a good godly Christian way. And he's just saying this is what it really is supposed to look like. Verse 13, being defamed, we entreat. We just pray to God 
People put us down and we're treated like that. We just turn around and, and we commit it to the one who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2 says, So being defamed, we entreat, we are made as the filth of the world and are the off-scouring of all things unto this day. Now, again, the pause button. I thought all day long, how am I going to come up with that? Some of you guys will come up with a better one for me uh, to describe off-scouring. My family, (laughs) down in Kentucky, would make something they called souse. Does anybody know what souse is? You know what souse is? You're the first person since Kentucky. See if it's the same thing. They would take everything that's in the trash can after most of us would clean a hog and would take all that stuff that's in the trash can, the ears, the nose, and I'm not going to say everything else. And they'd put it in a big uh, grinder and grind it up. They'd boil it. Yeah, you got it. Uh, They would boil that, and from what I am told as it's boiling, the stuff just comes to the surface. There's some hair, scum. Yeah, you can turn your noses right straight up because everything I'm describing, I I tasted it once. And they would, I don't know what they did with that scum on the top, but if it was me, I would take that pot out there and dump the whole thing. I can imagine that old off-scouring, the stuff that rises to the surface that wasn't even good for the dog outside the back door. And that was the off-scouring, the stuff that nobody wanted. I mean, it's disgusting. Do you know what Paul said there in verse 13, the end of the verse? And we are and are the off-scouring of all things, even right now. Now stop for a minute. And look up here, if somehow the Apostle Paul could come in here and he knew us and he knew some of the issues we were having and and we all have pride. There's not a person sitting in here that doesn't have pride. We all have pride and somehow he could nail it. He knew how to do it and somehow he could expose it. And he did so by comparing what a genuine, heartfelt, humble Christian is supposed to live like. And that spirit of his just comes out and it's so moving and stirring and, and you heard how you really have been acting and how wrong it really is. I tried to tell you a while ago, I think I'd slide under the pew. So look what Paul says after that. When you have somebody in that place in life where you've got them down on their knees, so to speak, what do you do when somebody is humbled and they're broken and they realize how foolish they've been acting? How do you act? Is this your opportunity to pounce on them and to really, you know, shame them and say, now hopefully you've learned a lesson today. And no, let's see, verse 14. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Now look back up here. Um, I've, I've, I raised three daughters and I have learned that you know, there's times they've done things, and if I, maybe I caught them in the middle of their hand in the candy jar when it wasn't supposed to be there, I would say things like, what are you doing? You know, I'd give them this look, and you know, they have that little puppy dog look, their face drops down, and kind of walk away. And then, I mean, let me just tell you, shame works just until you get hungry again, until you want another piece of candy. 
So you can shame people with your attitude, but that's when you're in your own flesh. Or you can stop and have a godly attitude and say what Paul said, I'm not trying to shame you. I'm trying to warn you. You're my, what do you call them? Not just sons. You're my beloved sons. I love you as much as I love anything in this life, like our own children, guys. You know what it's like to love your own children. But if you listen to me, if you really do love your children, you don't let things go by. We don't, you know, and, and we've all chuckled and smiled at something ornery that they did when they were little and so forth. But I got to tell you, they grow up. Those little ornery ones grow up. And if you continue to smile and chuckle and make, oh, look how they do that, uh, you're, you're going to be in big trouble. Paul, if you really love your children, if you really love a friend, you'll be willing with a broken and a tender heart, sit down with them, and they can see and know this is a heart of love. You'll show them the truth and you tell them what's right. You're not going to be there like this, but you're going to be there just pleading with them as beloved brethren. I love you. I, I, would, I would want to do anything to help you get out of this attitude and the thing that you're in the middle of. That was Paul's attitude. I'm going to tell you that'll draw a man to the, to the, uh, to the altar for Christ's sake. And that's what Paul was driving for. Uh, Paul wanted change, not shame. Paul wanted a whole different attitude. Paul wanted them to lay down this proud and haughty attitude of, look at us, and, and, and uh, you know, we're the epitome of what a church ought to look like. Paul wanted to be done with that. And he was warning them, it's, it's the shot across the bow. You need to make some changes. And, and then look what he said in verse 15. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. So follow me. Do what I've shown you you're supposed to do. I trained you. And I gave you my heart and soul and I told you what was right and I, I've shown you what is wrong to do. So I led you to Christ. Could you not come back to where we used to be? And, you know, like I believe it was the church of Ephesus. You, you know, I, I see all your labor and all the things you're doing in Revelation, it says. But I've got somewhat against thee. You left your first love. You've changed from what you used to be like when you first got saved. You know so much now, and you're so much wiser. And, and in our Christianity, guys, be careful. This is not us. You've grown so much in your Christian life. You've reached some kind of a level to where you don't need to be reprimanded anymore. As a matter of fact, when you feel like you're being reprimanded, you've got a way of letting it glance off of you. And, you know, hopefully it goes to everybody else, but I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay the way I am. But that's not the way you were taught. And Paul says, as I'm following God, please follow me. Please don't go back into that kind of an attitude. Please don't let this destroy your life. So where would your heart be tonight? Yeah, get them, Paul. Go get those Corinthians. They really needed to hear that. I can't believe they would set themselves up like a king. Is there a king in your heart other than Jesus Christ? And is there somebody else that leads your heart other than God? And is there another person that thinks it knows a better way other than what this word here says to do? And if there is, you've got some other king other than Jesus Christ living in your heart. And Paul says, would you get back to following me, which now is the word of God? Would you get back to the word of God? And to be able to do so. I mean, it's one thing to shoot the large cannon across the bow of a ship. And for it to realize, ah, let's turn around and go back home. 
But for the Christian life, I mean, they may have sunk a ship in that day, but a friend, if you don't stop and realize where you're at, if you're walking away from God, drifting away in pride and going on thinking everything's just fine the way I am, you're sinking not just your life, but in some cases a whole family behind you. People that have been watching you at work, people in church that have been, you know, they've looked up to you and you, you've had a, a lot of good teaching, but God doesn't need a smart person. God needs a humble person. And God can change people's lives with somebody that's willing to humble themselves back under the mighty hand of God. That's what Paul was trying to say there in verse 15. There's 10,000 instructors out there. There's lots of advice and lots of opinions, and some of them are going to sound really good. But you've only been led to Christ by one who brought you to the true gospel in the right way. Now come back and follow. I'm just going to put it this way. Get back to following the Word of God. The challenge to me was very obvious, very humbling as you work on a message like this. You can't work on a message like this without conviction piercing your heart. Where am I? Where do you stand tonight? Are there things where you feel like, you know, you've reached, boy, you're up here now, you're at a place, I'm good, I I don't need an altar anymore, I don't need that humbling thing, I've reached this place in life where I'm just, I'm just on cruise, man, and I'm okay. You're in trouble. Because when you get to the place where you think you've got it down, you're on your way down. You are. I would just challenge myself, you as our church, as we as a body of believers tonight, would do us good to take heed to what was said here tonight. And if God happens to show you something about your own heart, your own life, God help us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us in due time, in his own time, he'd like to do that. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.